What a great day, man. You all can have a seat. Welcome, welcome. Man, don't you just love seeing that? Life change all the time. Yeah. Never gets old, never gets old. Man, it is good to be with you all this crisp, cool fall day. And uh, man, good to have some of you joining us online. You got a question for you. What was the best day of your life? If you're a parent, maybe it's when your kid was born. If you got multiple kids, maybe when all of them were born. Maybe not. Maybe it's just when one particular one. If so, don't tell that to the other ones. That's a bad thing to do as a parent. Maybe it was a day you landed your dream job for some of you. Maybe the day you retired from that dream job. Best day of your life. Maybe like that couple we just witnessed, it's the day you surrendered to Jesus and submitted to him. You were baptized into him. If you're married, maybe, maybe it was the day that you got married. June 10th, 2000, it's my wedding date. And it's the best day of Jen's life. It's probably not. (laughs) But that's a fun question to think about, right? The best day of your life. I mean, it conjures up all the good memories, happy feelings, good thoughts. It takes us down, man, all the different things that can contend for that. Like, that's a happy thing to think about. The best day of your life. But, but what was the worst day of your life? Not as pleasant to think on, is it? We don't like going there. The worst day those are memories we'd like to stuff away, we'd like to avoid. We want to get rid of that. The worst day of your life. For some of you, there's too many contenders there, right? The death of a loved one, a family member, a friend. Some of you just have too many contenders in that category alone. Maybe it was the day you lost that dream job. Maybe the day that you received the diagnosis from the doctor. Maybe that one bad financial decision that wrecked everything. The day the moving company showed up and you said goodbye to all that was familiar and safe and comfortable. Maybe it was the day your parents got divorced. Maybe when you got divorced. For some of you, you were forced to relive the worst day, day after day after day after day with those harmful, abusive words, those harmful, abusive blows, or just maybe the deafening silence of neglect. Worst day of your life. You know, in the story of humanity, there's one bad day that opened the door for every worst day after that. It happened in a garden. It was the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve playing in paradise. They had everything perfect there until until they believed the lie of Satan and they bit of the forbidden fruit and that brought a bad day that ushered in all the bad days since. And it broke their relationship with God It broke their relationship with one another, broke their relationship with all of creation, even with themselves and unsettledness within. And we, we've inherited the mess they made. Now, not to put too much blame on them, I'm pretty confident had they not have bitten the fruit, one of us inevitably will. I know myself well enough. 
I know some of you too well, we, we would have made the mess. But that bad day in the Garden of Eden led to what would become Jesus' worst day. Jesus had this crazy week that his worst day came pretty much right on the heels of what would have been one of his best days. At the beginning of the week, he was back in Jerusalem for one of the major religious festivals. He's there with his friends. It's the epicenter of their faith. There's so much excitement and good things going on. At the beginning of the week, he comes into town hailed as king, and he's celebrated and cheered by the crowds and the masses. And by the end of the week, all of that is shifting and changing. By the end of the week, things are turning out very differently. And so here he is. He's shared one final meal with his closest friends. And after dinner, they went out to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his friends, sit here while I go and pray And he took Peter and James and John with him. That's kind of his inner three. And he became deeply troubled and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and he fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might just pass him by. Some of you, you know what that's like. You've been in that moment where the pain train is coming. You see it coming down the tracks, but everything's already set in motion. It's unstoppable. You know what's about to happen. Maybe you've had one of those ugly events in life, and it's about to go public, and you just know. You know how devastating that's going to be. Maybe it's that moment you're sitting bedside at the hospital, and you know It's only going to be worse. And in that moment, you cry out to God. You know what's inevitable. You cry out, God, is there any, any other way? Please, there's got to be another way. Jesus gets that. He's been there. He understands. He identifies with you and your pain. In this moment, Jesus cried out, Abba, which means dad, Dad, Father, everything is possible for you. So please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. This cup of suffering, this cup of suffering is a metaphor used throughout the Old Testament. It's the consequence of our waywardness, of our sin. The cup metaphorically filled with the fury of God against sin, the wrath of God against disobedience. It's the judgment of God for those who have not followed God. This cup of suffering, because God is life and God is the giver of life, when we break relationship with God, we lose life. And so this cup of suffering is the cup of death, physical death, emotional death, relational death, spiritual death. And this is the cup that sits in front of Jesus. This cup is filled with all the sin of all the world, big and small. Every war, drop in the cup. All the genocide, 
goes in that cup. The, the racism, it's in the cup. The injustice, it's in the cup. And, and not only the big sins of all the world, but the sin in our life, big and small. Every angry outburst, it's in the cup. Every lustful look, that, that's in the cup too. All the times we made a decision determined by greed, that's in the cup. Deceiving one another, neglecting another's need, just on and on and on it goes, right? Our cup overflows from just one day, if it even takes an entire day. But God, he doesn't want us to drink that cup. No, in his goodness and his love for us, he wants a different outcome for us. So instead, he pours all those cups into one. Thousands of years, billions of people all over the world, every sin committed, it all goes in that cup. And this, this is what most troubled Jesus Because there he is looking at this cup that he must drink from, and he doesn't want to drink it. He knows what this means. He he knows that this is his mission. It's what he came to do. Everything he's done up to this point has been leading up to this, to this moment, to this cup. But now the time is here, and he does not want it. It's not even his cup to drink. We We can't blame him for what he's praying, right? I mean, it's not even his. He contributed nothing to the cup. And yet there it is. And so in all of his humanity, in all of his humanness, he cries out to the Father, I know what this means, and I don't want it. Is there any, any other way? God, Father, Dad, I know that this means you and I will be separated for the first time in all of eternity. In all of eternity past, Jesus has experienced perfect oneness and togetherness with the Father. And he knows that in this moment to drink this cup, all of that will be ripped apart. He'll be separated from his dad. Jesus is about to experience what you and I have experienced. A brokenness with God. But he's about to experience it to the billionth degree. And for the first time, never knowing it before. All at once. All the sin of all the world. And all because he chooses to love us. And it's not even his cup to drink. So he cries out, Dad, is there any, any other way? And with all gentleness and compassion, the father simply says, no. Son, if you don't drink it, they must. They must. And that leads to what would be the worst day of Jesus' life. Betrayal being beaten and mocked and tortured and crucified and killed. But I'm getting ahead in the story. We're still in the garden. Jesus, after praying for a while, returned and found the disciples asleep. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? 
Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them again, and he prayed the same prayer as before. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they could not keep their eyes open, and they did not know what to say. Ever been there? Ever fall asleep while someone else is praying? Now, sometimes it's not your fault. Sometimes people just drone on and on. Jesus has some words for those people. Have you had one of those times when even on your own prayer, you can't make it through, you're just so tired, you just fall asleep praying? How does Jesus make it? Well, he conditioned himself to pray. I think we can learn from that, that we can condition ourselves to pray. You know, on the worst day, what did Jesus do? Where did he turn? Where did he run? To the Father in prayer. Jesus did not isolate himself. You know, isolation is when you run from God, when you run from others, you run from your problems. No, Jesus chose instead solitude. Solitude is when you run to God and you get alone with him in private. See, isolation is when we get alone by ourselves, and that's when the devil, he beats us up. Solitude is when we get with God and we allow him to build us up. Isolation is when we run from everything and we find ourselves all alone, and that's the worst place to be. Solitude is when we're already broken and we go to God and he builds us up. And, and you know, nobody, nobody wants to suffer. Nobody invites suffering. Nobody plans for suffering. Like you don't schedule your times of suffering, right? When suffering comes knocking on the door, you know, like open the door, like, oh, you know what? Suffering right now is kind of a bad time. But Tuesday afternoon, I've got some room. Let's, let's put it on the calendar for then. Like nobody does that. No, when suffering comes knocking, our response is, hey, now's not a good time, but how about, I don't know, like half past uh, never? (laughs) Like we don't readily open the door for suffering and invite suffering in and say, oh, now's a good time to suffer. Nobody wants to suffer. Nobody likes suffering. We don't schedule suffering, but we can prepare for suffering. We must prepare for suffering because it will come knocking. And like a bad relative, it just walks right in without an invitation. So we need to prepare for it. And Jesus had been preparing and moving towards this final day with every previous day of his life. His entire life was preparation for this moment, for this cup. And a lot of people will kind of dismiss this, dismiss the suffering of Jesus because, well, he's God, so of course he can endure. It's not a big deal because he's like superhero God. It's precisely because Jesus is God that this was so painful for him. You know, when Jesus became human, he was still God. So yes, it's true, Jesus was God. He was fully God, fully human. But when he entered into humanity, he left all his privilege Bible says in Philippians 2, he left all the perks and privilege of being God at the door. He cloaked himself, wrapped himself in humanity, God with skin on, if you will. 
And so he became like us, identifying as human, still God in essence, but leaving the perks and the power aside, Jesus was fully God, fully human. Not like half and half, like a demigod, no. He wasn't like superhero Jesus, like human, but somehow more like Superman. No, he wasn't a Marvel character from DC Comics. It wasn't that. He was fully human, emptied of all the divine privilege and perks, and filled with the Holy Spirit. The same thing Scripture encourages us to do, to be filled full of the Holy Spirit. The same power that Jesus accomplished everything he did is available to us. The same means that allowed Jesus to do everything he did is available to us to be filled with the Spirit, the power of the Spirit at work in us. That's how Jesus did what he did. So he prepared for all the bad days that would come by spending every day connecting to God the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. Hear that again. What what enabled Jesus to endure the bad day was that he spent every other day connecting to God the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. So when suffering showed up and knocked on the door, instead of running away, Jesus ran to the Father and he prayed. And because prayer was the essential element of every other day of his life, It was the obvious decision on the worst day of his life. Because prayer was part of every other day, it was the essential thing to do on the worst day. And listen, friends, church, if Jesus needed to pray, how much more do you and I need it? If Jesus, who was in essence God and totally sinless and just cloaked himself in humanity, if he needed to pray, how much more do you and I need to pray? And Jesus prayed honestly. He said, Dad, I don't want this. I think honest prayers like that are really the only kinds of prayers that matter. Like if we're not praying honestly, what are we doing? I think those are the prayers that God delights in. And it's not that we're going to shock God and tell him something he doesn't already know. Like we're introducing God to some new info. Like God knows it. We're just simply acknowledging that we know it too. He just longs for us to call out to him. You know, there's something weird that happens. When we keep all that's going on inside us, when we keep it bottled up and inside, we don't speak it out, it it resides in one part of our brain. I'll spare you all the anatomy and science and biology behind it, but it, it hangs out in one part of the brain. And it can grow there like a cancer. But when we speak it out, there's this wild thing that happens. We speak it out. And as we speak those things, we then hear those things, and it goes to a different part of our brain, and it's like the light bulb comes on. We're like, whoa, hold on. And it registers as though it's new information. The human brain is at once brilliant and dumb. (laughs) Like, this is the same brain doing this, right? God knows that we need to speak it out, that we need to hear it, and he knows that we need to come to him for the help. And some of you, you really need to hear what I'm about to say. So I want you just to to lean in a bit for this. Sorrow is not sin. It's not a sin to be sad. Your depression is not sin. 
Your depression is depression. Your sorrow is sorrow. Your sadness is sadness. And there may be some sin that has led to that, but those things in and of themselves are not sin. In fact, it's possible to have both full sorrow and full joy at once. Joy, knowing who God is, what he's doing, how he works and what he does, and yet be totally sorrowful in the circumstances facing us. It's not a sin to be sad. Now, it's not good for you to stay there. God doesn't long for you to just camp out in the sadness and the suffering. He wants to move you to another spot. But I would say it's wrong to pretend that we don't have any sadness or sorrow or depression. It's not good for us, and it may border on sin, to just do what comes naturally to most people in the Western world. I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm fine. Marriage is fine. Kids are fine. Work is fine. Life is fine. Everything's fine. When the reality is fine simply means we have feelings inside of us that we are not expressing. And that's not fine. In fact, that makes us very unfine. It's not healthy. It's not good. What Jesus was doing in the garden was processing his pain. He was identifying his emotion, the sadness of soul, and he was sorting it out with the Father. You know, so many of us have never really learned to process our emotions. Not by your fault. You just may never have been taught that. But so instead, we either run from them or we just stuff them down. We, we stuff it down until finally like a pressure cooker, there's too much in there. and Boom! And, and we blow up. And, and we, we blow up on our spouse or our kids or our coworkers. And it's not even their fault, but they're taking the brunt of it. And sometimes... We're not angry with them. We're just angry at life. Sometimes we're angry at ourselves, but we don't want to blame ourselves. So it's easier to put it on somebody else, and it just makes a mess. But some of us, you're going to process different. And pretend it doesn't happen. You're trying to soothe it over, put a Band-Aid, get a quick fix to it. Maybe, maybe you process with alcohol, painkillers, weed, maybe something stronger. Maybe the way you deal is you just escape. Shop it away. You don't even have to go shopping now. You can just sit and scroll shop from right where you are and you just get lost in the internet. And Amazon loves you. Prime just keeps showing up to the door. You just buy away all the pain. Or maybe you just veg out and you just binge on movies or TV or porn. Maybe your escape is to use other people to make yourself feel good. It's a one failed relationship after another. You just keep churning through people. Maybe it's your hobby. You just spend countless hours or days doing that thing that brings you joy. You just invest yourself in the hobby and get lost in that. Pretend like nothing else in the world's there. Maybe, maybe it's your work and you're going to just succeed past your problems. And you'll just put so much into your work that you just work it all through. How's that working for you? That's not. None of those things work, do they? They just make it worse. We just add more complication, more issues, more problems, more pain to the pain. None of those things really help. Friend, prayer is where we process. 
So instead of taking it out on other people or taking it out on yourself or running away from it, run to God and take it to him in prayer. And it's okay to say, as Jesus did, God, I don't want this thing. I don't want this. Now we need to eventually move to where we can say with Jesus, God, I don't want this, but I want your will more than mine. I want what you want more than what I want. So I don't want this, but I want what you want. And the way we get to that point is we keep going back to God. And we keep taking the issue back to God. Prayer is a place where we learn to align our will to God's will. And that might take a while. So it's okay to pray the same thing multiple times. Jesus did at least three times in the garden. It's three times recorded for us. I'm guessing he prayed that same thing many, many times beyond that. God, I don't want this, but I want what you want more than what I want. And God doesn't need to hear us say it again and again. God doesn't need us to pray the same thing over, but we need it. It's not enough to say it once and act like it's fine and then walk away from it. No, then prayer is where we wrestle with it. So we gotta keep wrestling. We gotta keep wrestling because it's then that we learn how to submit to God. It's there where we learn to trust God. It's there that we learn to lean on Jesus. It's there where we learn to allow the Holy Spirit to shape us and mold us and lead us and transform us into the redeemed versions of ourselves. It's there in prayer where we learn to trust God for the resurrection, even if it means we have to go through a crucifixion. So friend, pray. Pray daily and pray honestly and pray the same thing over and over and over and over again if you need to. And keep at it. And learn to submit to God and trust him and believe him for what's coming. In fact, I encourage you to carve out some time this week. Of all the things you would spend one hour doing this week, take one hour. Turn off the TV Put the phone away, come in from the hobby, take one hour and go to God and just talk to him about the thing that makes you suffer the most. Some of you, you've been through Rooted, right? Any Rooted peeps? Yeah. And so during Rooted, you've done this prayer experience. Don't let that be a once in a lifetime or only a once at Rooted kind of thing. But practice that again. You know, Jesus invited his friends to the garden with him. And while they may not have been praying the same prayer, he invited them to pray in proximity to him. And sometimes it's just good. So for that hour, maybe you invite your friends to join you and you take time praying about the things that makes you all suffer. And you pray in proximity and you just get with God. I encourage you, take an hour this week and pray. Well, Jesus, after praying, returned to them the third time. And he said, go ahead, sleep, have your rest. But no, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up now, let's be going because look, my betrayer is here. And immediately, even as Jesus spoke these words, Judas, one of his 12 followers, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent by the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, the elders, and the traitor Judas had given them a prearranged signal. You'll know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss, and then, then you can take him away under guard. And as soon as they arrived, Jesus walked up to Ju- Judas walked up to Jesus. Rabbi, he exclaimed, 
and he gave him the kiss. Then the others with Judas grabbed Jesus and arrested him. But one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword. He struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Another account says Jesus immediately healed the man's ear, which would definitely get the attention of the guards. Now, this account, the men who came with him, there's probably at least 100 soldiers in this group who came to arrest Jesus. And Jesus asked them, am I some dangerous revolutionary? that you came with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there among you teaching every day. But these things are happening to fulfill what the scriptures say about me. It's fulfilling all the prophecy about me. Then all his disciples deserted him and ran away. Imagine the suffering of Jesus abandoned by his closest friends, betrayed by one of his closest friends. Then given over to a mock trial. He was beaten, he was tortured, he was mocked, he was killed, he was crucified. The emotional pain, the mental pain, the relational pain, the spiritual suffering he endured being separated from the Father for the first time in eternity. Friend, Jesus understands your suffering. He he knows what suffering is. And suffering is something we all have in common. You will suffer in life. It's not if, it's when. Suffering will come knocking at the door. My guess is it has already a time or two at least. And some of you, you know the suffering too well. You know the cancer that's not getting better. You know the chronic pain, the fibromyalgia, the lupus, the Crohn's disease, the congestive heart failure, the COPD. You know the limitations of your body and your body is winding down. You no pain. Some of you, you have undiagnosed ongoing pain. You don't have the funds to get it diagnosed, let alone to get it treated. Jesus understands your pain. He sympathizes. He empathizes. He's been where you are. And we try, like I mentioned earlier, we try to just avoid the suffering, to numb it when it comes. We buy things. We watch things. We consume things. We go to places. We consume Everything under the sun, food, porn, alcohol, meds, drugs, people, you name it. But we all suffer and none of that ends it. It just makes it worse. And we suffer because suffering knocks on the door and just barges right in. We suffer because we live in a world that's broken. We suffer because of the nasty things other people have done to us. We suffer because of the nasty things we have done to ourselves and other people. And sometimes we face the consequence. But for those who follow Jesus, listen, Suffering is not a courtroom. For those who follow Jesus, God is not punishing you. He is not judging you. He has not sentenced you to a life of pain and suffering. Now, God may allow you to suffer as a consequence of some things you've done. Sometimes that's exactly what grace looks like. I know. I've been there more times than I wish. And sometimes God lets all of that come full surface so that it will awaken us and draw us to him to show us our need for fellowship with the Father, to get us to run to dad instead of run away. But the judgment, well, that judgment has passed to Jesus. He satisfied the wrath with his blood on the cross. And that cup of suffering for eternity is empty for you. See, for those who would 
follow Jesus, suffering is not a courtroom. It is a classroom. It's the classroom where we learn to trust God, where we learn to lean into Jesus, where we learn to depend on the Father, where we learn to allow the Holy Spirit to do his transforming work in us. It's where we learn to put the belief in God even when the circumstances stink. So allow God to teach you what he needs to teach you in that classroom of suffering. Well, let's look at one last detail that Mark includes about what went down in the Garden of Gethsemane that night. One young man following behind was clothed only in a long linen shirt. And when the mom tried to grab him, he slipped out of his shirt and ran away naked. What? <laughs> like, why? Of all things, does Mark, the gospel writer, include this in the account? Is he just thinking, man, this story is getting really heavy. We need some comic relief. Let's throw in a naked guy running away. Let's put a streaker down the street. And aren't you glad if you're that guy that you're not named? I mean, like, he named Judas the traitor. Imagine, like, Johnny the naked dude, like, Johnny the streaker. No, no, there's something much bigger going on here. You remember that other garden, what happened there, the original garden, Eden? The one with the off-limits fruit tree, Adam and Eve playing in paradise. And you remember, God had told Adam and Eve, all this creation, all of it, all the beauty, the animals, the mountains, the streams, like go snorkel, go climb, go do whatever. It's all for you, for fun and for joy. Like rule over it, subdue it, create community, fill this with more people. This is yours. And at the top of all creation is you, my people. You're the most special thing in all of this. But as happens, when you get to rule the roost, sometimes you might forget if you're the manager that you're only the manager, not the owner creator. And so God says, but there's this one thing, this tree, that's off limits. That's there to remind you that as special as you are, you are still created thing, not the creator. The tree was there to remind them, don't forget your creator. But they did. And they broke the rule they ate because they tried to take the place of their creator instead of just follow him. And check out what happened after they ate the fruit. At that moment, their eyes were open. They suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. Now, the author of Genesis has gone out of the way numerous times before this to bring these two things up, that Adam and Eve were naked and felt no shame. In fact, it's a central part of that story. We'll dig into that in another sermon another time. But nakedness without shame. But then they sin, and now they realize their nakedness, and they feel shame. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And then the cool evening breezes blew. I imagine it was chilly in the garden at that point. The man and his wife heard the Lord walking about in the garden, so they hid from God among the trees. And God called out to the man, where are you? And so God did not know. And Adam replied, well, we heard you in the garden, so we hid because we were afraid, because we were naked. Fear, nakedness, shame. Mark's not giving us comic relief. Mark is connecting the dots between the very first garden and Gethsemane. He's reminding us that in Eden, Adam sinned. But in Gethsemane, Jesus suffered for our sin. 
Adam turned from God, Jesus turned to God. Adam ate the fruit, Jesus drank the cup. Adam substituted himself for God, Jesus substituted himself as God for us. Adam was naked and ashamed, Jesus was nailed to a cross naked and took all of our shame on himself. Because of what Adam did, death came to everyone. But because of what Jesus has done, everyone is invited to life. You see, the worst day for Jesus can become the best day for us. There in Gethsemane, Jesus was reversing the curse of Eden satisfying the wrath of God, setting us free. But that healing only happens when we run to Jesus. See, because Jesus drank that cup, sorry, because Jesus drank that cup, we get to drink of another cup. Because Jesus took the cup of suffering, we now get the cup of remembrance, the cup of celebration, the cup we call communion to commune, to be in unity with our God and with one another. Remembering what Jesus has done for us, celebrating how he has rescued us, celebrating that our cup of suffering is empty because Jesus already drank that for us. There's no wrath for us. Jesus has satisfied that with what he did on the cross. But our cup of life is full and overflowing if we run. To Jesus. The only way you get to switch the cups, the only way you get to change the cup from suffering to celebration is by surrendering to Jesus, by allowing Him to give you life, by acknowledging that you need Jesus to rescue you and that rescue comes from no one and nowhere else, not of yourself, and that you need Jesus to lead you and you allow Him to do so. And we begin that with repentance and prayer and confession and baptism, just like we witnessed earlier. And we put all the sin and the suffering and the shame to death in that water, and we come up in a brand new life with Jesus forever. And it doesn't mean we'll never have another bad day. It just means we won't have any more days without purpose, and we will have an eternal day in front of us where there is no more suffering at all. And it's not just about going to heaven. It's going to be with God. That's the point of heaven is that we have restored fellowship with our Father. And so if you have never made that decision, if you've never surrendered to Jesus, let today be your day. Just like the couple earlier, let today be your day. Stop by the next steps area. Stop by and let us know you're ready to go all in with Jesus. And for those of you who have, I wanna invite you to celebrate communion with me in this moment. I'm gonna invite you, as you came in today, you received a cup with bread on the bottom. Go ahead and open that up and take the bread, hold it in your hand. Hold the cup in your hand. Those of you joining us online, take what you have available for this. And I'm gonna pray for us for a moment. And then together we will eat and drink. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you God, our souls are naked before you. But we are done running from you. We are done running from our sorrow and from suffering. And so instead, God, in this moment, we run to you. 
to your arms, no longer clothed in the shame of our sin. We are now clothed in the grace and the righteousness of our good God. And we praise you. And God, we don't understand why you love us like you do. If it were up to us, if we were you in your seat, pretty confident we just scrapped this whole human mess a long time ago. We'd have washed our hands, we'd have walked away, but not you. God, you love us through all the pain and the suffering that we have caused you and each other. And even though we've turned our backs on you over and over again, a billion times over, you still came for us, you died for us, and you come to us still. And you chose to suffer for us because you long for us to be with you. So God, while we definitely don't deserve any of it, especially your love, in this moment, we declare that we are grateful for it. And we wanna celebrate your love. We wanna shout it from the rooftops and the street corners and tell everyone we know that our God really loves us. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness, for drinking the cup of suffering so that we may drink the cup of celebration. We thank you for what you have done for us and for all the joy and beauty that now are ahead of us. And we long to be with you in the peace of paradise. But until then, Holy Spirit, keep us faithful to your mission. Keep us safe from temptation and keep us in your holy care, we pray. Amen. And take the bread, the body of Christ broken for you for the forgiveness of sins. And the cup, Jesus' blood poured out for you on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins.